University is a church in Bath, Maine that exists to make disciples, develop leaders, and plant churches that multiply. This week, Pastor Joel Littlefield is preaching through Daniel chapter 1, and the sermon title is Exiled for God's Purposes. We hope you are blessed by the message today. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah, he called Shadrach, Mishael, he called Meshach, and Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar, and the king spoke with them, and among all of them none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters who were in his all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of our Lord. Amen. All right, let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful to have come through many books in the Bible since we've been together as a church. And thank you uh, so much, Lord, that we are starting a journey in this in this book now. We just trust because we know who you are. We know your nature that you are sovereign, that you have a perfect um, providential plan, that there is a reason why we begin Daniel today. And I trust, we ask also in faith that you will give us um, each uh, a clarity as to why. why. Why do we need this book right now? Why do we need your Holy Spirit to teach us through this particular text? So God, open our eyes. Please, God, speak through me and the other elders who will teach throughout this series. Give us all 
the ears that we need to hear your spirit speaking and teaching us. God, give us solid ground to stand on. Give us resilience against the world and the culture and the tide that is ripping past us every day. God, give us faith in our faithful God. We ask you that you would pour out your spirit on this church and grow us in this time and in this season. Let this series be a blessing, God, and that we would just surrender to your will and your teaching and, uh, and just say, Lord, your will be done in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. It's exciting, right? It's always exciting as a teacher to begin a new book. I think anyone who's taught scripture would say that's there's something about finishing, completing a book, and coming to a new book together. Daniel is an incredible book. I, I don't know if you have all had the privilege of reading it from beginning to end. Hopefully you will in this series, maybe even several times. I know that challenge has been given on a few different occasions, but I think that the more we are taking in God's Word, and as you're doing that on your own and praying and asking God to teach you, that was when we come together and we're studying and then you're being taught the Word, I just think that you'll have a greater understanding of, of that text. So please take us up on that. But it's, it's an exciting thing starting this journey through Daniel, and, and I'm sure because I know a lot of you have heard perspectives on eschatology, which I'll say that word a few times, I'm sure, throughout the book of Daniel. Eschatology is the study of end events, end times, end things. That's what we're talking about. And Daniel is certainly known as a book, an eschatological, it's an even bigger word, book. Say eschatological. It is so fun. You'll be saying it over and over again. It'll, it's awesome. And people will look at you funny. Uh, so, but the, the idea is that there are there are a variety of thoughts, I'm sure, in your head already about Daniel. We're, we're a young church. We've not been together for 40 years journeying through the Bible to where God has knit a, our thinking on eschatology together. God may do that. That's, that's fine. But because we come from different backgrounds, I'm sure there are a variety of thoughts. I'm sure that some are thinking when we went through Daniel or when we decided to go through Daniel that you're thinking now we finally get to hear what these guys think about the rapture. We finally get to hear what they think about the Antichrist because these are two big things that just get talked about when Daniel's study is thrown out. So not today. They just don't come in the text, okay? We're not trying to avoid heavy issues or hard issues or good things. But... We will dive into those things as they're presented to us. So just rest assured that as we go through Daniel, it will be treated like any other book in the Bible that we walk through and that we're going to take every text, everything that comes up, and we're going to ask the Lord, teach us, teach us. What, what does your word say? All right, that's, that's our commitment to you as elders. That's my commitment to you as a teacher. There's a lot that will be plain application in, the, in this text for us, in this book. But there will also be some trickier passages. There will be times where it is necessary for us to teach with a little bit more of an open hand. If you guys understand what that means, closed-handed issues is that I will never preach the gospel with an open hand and say, interpret it however you want. The gospel is the gospel. It's clear. But there are other passages that we understand that as we're teaching, it ha we have to be a little open-handed and we'll try to be clear when there are multiple viewpoints that fit within what we would say 
is orthodox Christian thinking. Where can we differ in our thoughts on eschatology and still fellowship together happily and peacefully? Right? That's, I think, important to understand. So if you're curious, what if I teach something or the elders say something that you don't particularly agree with? And I think that there needs to just be a lot of grace in that, as with, as with many things. So there, there will be differing interpretations on the end times, on eschatology. And, and I think, again, like I said, there needs to be a lot of grace. But we are together on the gospel. Let's remember that, church. We're, we're together on the gospel, the foundational principles of what it is to be saved in Jesus Christ by faith in Jesus Christ alone. I think that will help us as we, as we go through. There are also some views that we would say are wrong or that would cause confusion in Christianity, and we will be open about those issues as well. It's not like we're going to just say, whatever your view, that's fine. There are views that fit nicely within Orthodox Christian thinking, and then there are some views that are just downright wacky, not supported by biblical theology, and that we would want to say, hey, we're going to warn you. Don't think this is the the right viewpoint to hold on to. And, And that's, I think that's the right way to teach through this book. If you do happen to be a member here and you hear me or one of the elders teach a perspective that you don't agree with, don't just get up and leave. Okay? One, everyone will see you and will watch you as you leave and it'll be embarrassing and we'll know why. Okay? Just take a note. What is it that was said? And let's talk about it. Right? Does that make a lot of sense? Set up an appointment with one of the the elders And let's just talk through the thing that you think we said that was totally wrong. Okay? And that's fine. We're not infallible. I'm not infallible. I'm going to teach the best as I can based on the conviction that I have on some of these topics. And again, some of them will be very plain application. I think, though, that said, I hope it brings you comfort that the primary reason that we preach through Daniel, and I'm sure you can guess it if you're a member here, it's the same reason we preach through any other book, and that is to exalt Jesus. That's why we're studying Daniel. We're not studying Daniel to put lines in the sand and say, here's where we stand on the end times, and if you're not with me, then you're against me. That's not not how we treat these topics. We do treat things like the gospel that way. I mean, the gospel is something that you hold so tightly to, and you never, ever, ever compromise on that. But we will teach this book in order to exalt Jesus and grow in our love for God and our calling to live for him. I think that's going to be something that, something that the book of Daniel and his story and how God works in these individuals is going to, it's going to help us in that. We will see Christ in the text. It's one of the most amazing things about reading and teaching through an Old Testament book is when you understand the New Testament, the Old Testament comes alive. When you understand the Old Testament, the New Testament comes alive. It goes together, and so we'll do the best we can to show how those fit together. But Christ will be seen in these texts. We'll see the beauties of the gospel. We're going to see redemption in this book and God's grace as we walk together through it. So that's the first introduction. I actually have a second introduction. Isn't that weird? Two introductions. That was just the introduction to the whole series, okay? Just to kind of set the stage for how we should be thinking through this. Next, we need to set the stage for the book of Daniel itself. All right, so just bear with me. We will get to the text. We are not teaching through this entire chapter. I'm really going to only cover a few verses. We need to lay the whole foundation. And the reason being is because when you read the first verse, in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, you already have a question, who the heck is Jehoiakim? 
So to just fly past that and just get to Daniel in the lion's den would be wrong. <laughs> These are, there's a lot of uh, highlighted scenes that we know about from Daniel, but we have to go slow. And all the elders, as we've, as we've prayed through this and talked about how to treat this series, we all agree that we're going to just take, we're going to take our time. There's no rush through this. No rush. So we want to slow down where we need to do that. This is written by Daniel. Seems obvious because your book says Daniel right there. But um, as it's been with many of the books that are in the canon of Scripture, those books that were allowed and ultimately proven to be holy Scripture, well, they got here for a reason. And Daniel, that you wouldn't know this by just reading the text, there, there was a lot of scrutiny and, and a season that went by um, in the early centuries before Daniel was even accepted as Holy Scripture. But here it sits, and so it's incredible. We've had these Bibles in print for uh, thousands of years, right? But it, there, was, there was some contesting, even on the fact that Daniel wrote it. One of those things, and one of the reasons why, and this is important, the reason why it was even contested whether Daniel wrote it in the 6th century is because the prophecies are so accurate. That's an incredible thing. That helps us see some, some crazy things already about the book of Daniel. They contest whether Daniel wrote it in the 6th century because the prophecies that happened later were so specific, they thought, no, no, no. The events happened, then somebody wrote it and said it was prophecy. That tells us something about the book. They're so accurate that the critics say it must have been written after the life of Daniel. The first seven chapters are written in the third person. That's another unique thing about it. The first seven chapters are written in the third person. And then in chapter 8, 9, and 10, we read, Then I, Daniel. Then he begins to write and speak in the first person. That's just an interesting thing to note. That's a unique thing about Daniel and this author. Interestingly enough, Daniel is written also in two languages, which, which, which you wouldn't know unless you have a weird Bible and it was written in two languages. It was actually written in two languages, and then we translated it to English here, and that's, that's good for us because I don't speak those other languages. It was written in chapter 1. The, the whole chapter of chapter 1 was written in Hebrew, and then, and then abrupt, it was changed abruptly to Chaldean or Aramaic in chapter 2. It's, um, it led to further questions on whether Daniel was even the original author or not. Okay, But it makes sense that Daniel in the first chapter, as he's laying out sort of the early part of his story, that it would be written in his language. He was a Hebrew. He was from the tribe of Judah. But then he went into the Babylonian Empire. And we saw already from the first text, that, from the first chapter, that him and his compadres were introduced to the ways of the Chaldeans. And by the end of the exiles... Of the Jews, most Hebrews spoke Hebrew, Chaldean, and Aramaic fluently. So it makes a, a lot of sense, and I don't want to bore you with all that, but again, it was more reason for liberal theologians to contest whether this was God's word or not. It just gave more uprise to, did Daniel even write this, or did two people write Daniel, one in one language and one another? Nope, Daniel wrote it. We know Daniel wrote it, and I'll get to the final reason why we can just totally overlook all of those other theories. We'll get to that in just a second. The other thing, and I'm sure you have heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You heard of those? Yep. Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls put a wrench in all of those theories. 
And this is very interesting, and I do think it's at least worth the introduction, including this. Several copies of Daniel, eight copies to be exact, were found and discovered in the Qumran caves in 1948. And if you know anything about the, the Dead Sea Scrolls, that allowed us to date those copies that were identical to the copies that we hold today and the oldest manuscript copies that were already archived. It proved to us that the Holy Scriptures, God's Word, was accurate. It was accurately copied and that they existed long ago. Every book, every Old Testament book other than the book of Esther was found in the caves of the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's incredible. Additionally, there were commentaries. Now, this is cool. I just learned this. There were commentaries on Daniel found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Already at that time, people commenting about what Daniel had taught, and they were found there showing that Daniel was being quoted as prophetic scripture as early as 25 B.C., Daniel was being quoted as scripture in those commentaries. Why? Because they have ways of dating those scrolls that were found. When were those written? And if they're written and circulated and found in scrolls, in clay pots rolled up, then they were already circulated. It takes time to circulate these things. One figure who reigned is described in great detail, and his name is Antiochus. Antiochus Epiphanes. Look him up in history. He was a tyrant. Caused a lot of trouble for the Jews. He reigned from 223 to 187 B.C. That always confuses me. Why are the numbers going backward when we're going forward in history? Again, that was B.C. So from 223 to 187 B.C. If Daniel was written after these events in Daniel 11 and 12, where the prophecies of Antiochus Epiphanes was mentioned, then it's not God's word at all. We cannot say or claim anything supernatural about a prophetic book if it was written after the events. Right? We could not, there's nothing impressive about writing about something that already happened and saying God predicted it. There's nothing impressive about that at all. So there's a lot of focus on that particular century BC on those events of Antiochus. So a guy that I've been reading, Jay Adams, feel free to look him up. He's a commentary that I've been looking at in, the, in my studies in Daniel. He says this, The fact that Daniel is among the earliest of the Dead Sea Scrolls indicates an even earlier date. If Daniel was written prior to the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, then the bias against the authenticity of Daniel is scattered to the winds. He also said this, If the book of Daniel and commentaries on Daniel appeared at Qumran even a few decades after the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, then the book must have existed earlier in order to have been copied and distributed so widely. If a book was being read as scripture in a remote desert commune, which was Qumran, it is evident that it had already had wide circulation. I say all of this to just say we can trust this book along with any other book that we would find in our Bibles. This is God's word. And there have been liberal theologians that have always sought to minimize the supernatural. Always. There will always be people attacking God's word, twisting what it says, what they think it means, in order to settle in the hearts of the minds of the people that this is not a holy book. But it is. It is a holy book. And the truth is, people far smarter than me have looked into this. Let's just say that Daniel, as a piece of literature, went through rigorous testing before it was canonized. 
the specificity of the kings and the kingdoms that we will see in this book, that are mentioned in this book, and the fulfillment of dozens and dozens of prophecies point toward the supernatural, point toward the fact that God inspired Daniel to write this book. It is the only explanation to why such specific prophecies can be mentioned and then fulfilled to the T. I'm talking numbers to the date of historical events that took place, including, including the coming of Jesus Christ, which I will say is also the primary reason why Daniel was written, to show the Jews in exile that a Messiah was coming. That's incredible. We have to have the context. We're reading this book, and we're like, well, what's the big deal? Daniel, blah, blah, blah. It's a big deal. Remember, it was written in the 6th century. It had a certain context. There were things going on in history at the time that this would have been an encouragement to. As it began to circulate after the time of Daniel, the Jews would have been able to think through, well, Daniel said this, and here's the prophecies as they're being fulfilled. And would not that have brought great comfort to a nation that was in exile? But the reason, the ultimate reason why we believe this is the book, this is God's book, this is supernatural, is because Jesus did come on the scene in the first century and he spoke these words in Matthew 24, 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through who? Daniel the prophet. That's enough for me. Isn't that amazing? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, validates Daniel as a prophet of God. And that's enough. This is God's word. This book that we're studying, it is a supernatural book. God is going to speak to us through it, I believe. So without getting into the interpretation of all that, I know I just brought us to a place of great speculation and and wonder, this abomination of desolation. We can't get into the interpretation of that. But what it is definitely saying is that Jesus, the Son of God, who died on the cross and rose, said plainly, that it is the prophet who spoke it. And I believe these words. So as a matter of reference, this is also just really quickly, and then we're going to dive into the beginning of verse 1. As a matter of reference in time, if this matters to you or if this is interesting to you, this is also the time when Aesop was writing his fables. It's interesting, isn't it? The great Athens Acropolis was, would be constructed only a couple centuries after Daniel wrote. Both Buddha and Confucius would live in the 5th century. We're talking Daniel wrote in the 6th century, and Buddha and Confucius come on the scene only 100 years later. Isn't that interesting? Daniel is a real figure. This is not fairy tale. Nobody would say Buddha is a fairy tale, would they? No, they'd say he's a false god, and we would agree with that. Right? But the existence of that particular vein of thinking. And Confucius, a man who actually lived. These are not fairy tales. Daniel is not a fairy tale. He lived and he spoke and wrote these words in the 6th century. Cool, huh? The account begins in verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. So do a quick flip over to 2 Kings with me. Verse, or chapter 23, verse 37. Who is Jehoiakim? What's happening with Israel? Why would this text say Judah and not just 
Israel. There's a history as to what happened with Israel up to this point coming into the 6th century. Here's what it says in 2 Kings chapter 23, verse 37. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That's speaking of Jehoiakim. According to all that his father had done, in his days, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came up, and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against him. And the Lord sent against him bands of Chaldeans and bands of Syrians and bands of Moabites and bands of Ammonites and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by his servants, the prophets. Surely this came upon Judah at the command of the Lord to remove them out of his sight for the sins of Manasseh according to all that he had done and also for the innocent blood that he had shed. A whole lot of history here, right? What you need to know is that leading up to Jehoiakim being the king, well, you probably know this about the kings, is that there was not a whole lot of good happening amongst the kings after Solomon. We had Saul, David, and then Solomon. There was a lot of sin, a lot of issues, but then you get into the kings and you see over and over and over again, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And Jehoiakim is one of those. And what happened because of the sins of Jehoiakim and his leadership and taking Israel in the wrong direction against the will and the commands of the Lord, that resulted in Daniel chapter 1 verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. The Lord gave Jehoiakim into the hands of an evil Babylonian empire ruler. So the good question to ask would be, why? That's a healthy question. Why would God give the king of Judah, of that tribe, why would he give the king into the hands of an evil empire and an evil ruler? And one of those answers has already come up in the text of kings that we read, that there was sin, that there was sin, and that they had rebelled. But this is the first of three invasions by Nebuchadnezzar. I just want you to imagine being a part of Jerusalem and in a span of span span of only 20 years to be raided three times by Babylon by Nebuchadnezzar three times there will be another one eight years after this one we're speaking of in Daniel and then another one ten years after that and then that one Jerusalem will be completely destroyed you can find that in your history books if the book of Daniel is about anything, it is about God's sovereignty over all things. I think that should be a common theme that we cling to as we read through and study this prophecy. That God is sovereign. That in the first two verses, if we see that God has allowed something that we would never allow, why would we ever allow that? God is doing something then that we can't possibly know all of the inner workings. But he's doing it. He's allowing it. God has allowed this tragedy to take place. So we have to understand that there's something happening in the sovereign mind of God to allow this to take place. Nebuchadnezzar is an evil king. He's a pagan Babylonian who worshipped Nebo. And you can look at this also in your uh, history books. or You probably don't have those at your house. I mean, who the heck has history books at their house that speak of Nebo? I'm like, just searching on Google. Okay, that's what we all do anyway. Nebo was the son of Marduk, wicked Babylonian deities. All part of the pantheon of gods that the Babylonians worshipped. 
which Nebuchadnezzar was actually named after, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebo, the son of Marduk, wicked Babylonian deities. But God allows him to besiege Judah as a result of their many years of disobedience. Judah was in disobedience. What you need to know is that this is not a a knee-jerk reaction, as though we come into Daniel chapter 1 and it seems like God is doing something that he shouldn't have done, but this is not a reaction of God just at the moment, hundreds of years earlier, after being completely united under the leadership of Moses and Joshua, that's a little bit of biblical history, they had a united Israel as they're heading towards the promised land. This was hundreds of years earlier, and finally entering the promised land under the leadership of Joshua, a united Israel. Then God gave them judges to rule them according to his law. And that's where we read the judges. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, judges. That's where we read. That's how God began to lead Israel through judges that would lay down the law of God. But that was not working. They continued to rebel. Then God gave Israel what they asked for, which was what? A king. They said, we want a king like the other nations. Give us a king. So God gave them a king. And we have Saul comes on the scene. And then we have Saul to David and to Solomon. And they continued to fall back to worship of idols. And they struggled with disunity amongst the tribes. As each king was imperfect and each king was sinful. Could not perfectly lead... And I think, again, even just already for the Christian mind and the gospel-tuned mind is thinking, well, I'm so glad that what didn't work then pointed ultimately to the fulfillment of what would happen in Christ, the true judge, the true king. All of these rulers that could not do for Israel what they needed were all temporary, but Christ is the permanent one. And just so know that about biblical uh, uh, theology and biblical understanding is that all of this pointed to the, the fulfillment of Christ and what he alone could do and perfectly rule somebody and perfectly be a king over them. But they would fall back and they would struggle and there would be disunity. After Solomon's sin, there was a civil war that resulted in the split of Israel into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom which was called Israel, and the southern kingdom that was called Judah. So that's why we have in this text that Nebuchadnezzar went into Jerusalem and besieged it. But it was in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah. Sin causes division. I'll say that right off the bat, because what we have is, in the very first verse, we have Judah, and that tells us something, that Judah was split off from the other tribes that were united under Moses and under Joshua, and that is as a result of sin. Sin causes division, it causes exile and banishment from the good things of God. We have to remember that. We need to think about that. Sin causes these things. It caused it here. It is the ultimate reason why the Jews are being brought into exile under Babylonian rule. The ultimate reason is because of sin. It's because of their choices to sin and rebel against God. But ultimately, God did what he had promised to do and what he had warned them. Deuteronomy 28, Deuteronomy chapter 28, beginning in verse 58, if you care to turn there, It'll also be on the screen as well. Deuteronomy 28, beginning in verse 58. 
If you are not careful to do all the words of this law that are written in this book, that you may fear this glorious and awesome name, the Lord your God, then the Lord will bring on you and your offspring extraordinary afflictions. Afflictions severe and lasting and sicknesses grievous and lasting. And he will bring upon you all the diseases of Egypt of which you were afraid and they shall cling to you. Every sickness also and every affliction that is not recorded in the book of this law, the Lord will bring upon you until you are destroyed. Whereas you were as numerous as the stars of heaven, you shall be left few in number. Because, why? Because you did not obey the voice of the Lord. And every opportunity was given and God is patient. You don't get the idea from Scripture that God brings quick judgment without any forethought. No, he warns and he warns and that is what prophecy is, a lot of it is for. This is what may come. This is the warning of what is to come if you do not change your ways. But it's because of disobedience. So during this first besieging, he takes some of the temple vessels. Look at verse Two again, and we'll read on a little further. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, and with some of the vessels of the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. So not only did that besieging, was it bad enough that there was an invasion, of course, into Jerusalem, but he took with them some of, not all, but some of the vessels, the temple vessels, and put them in the house of his God. It's like Nebuchadnezzar is saying, my God is better than your God. I'm going to go into your temple of this holy God, supposedly is what he's thinking, and I'm going to take, not only am I going to take your city, but I'm going to take those vessels that are considered holy, I'm going to put them and degrade them in this temple. I'm going to profane them. I'm going to show you that the reason I'm overcoming you is because my God is better than your God. That's what Nebuchadnezzar is ultimately probably thinking as he takes these vessels and puts them into the house of his God. Now, Nebuchadnezzar that we know for sure is pompous and prideful, as many or most earthly kings are. Would you agree with me? Most, many earthly kings can easily be filled with pride and pomp. He thinks his success is due to his own strength, also as most earthly kings do. Think about that. The success of a king or a ruler can quickly get to that king or ruler's head, that my success or what I'm doing or my endeavors are so good because of me. Because God is the one who gave King Judah into his hand, we know that that's not true. Isn't that interesting? The underworking of all of this. Nebuchadnezzar believes that he's more powerful than God and believes that he can do what he did because he is powerful. But unbeknownst to him, God is the one that allowed it. It's the only way it was possible. Because we know that God takes few and can conquer many. He can do that. It's happened all, all through history, all through Scripture where God will even purposefully whittle down a large army to just a few hundred in order to conquer the large army. Why? So that that army of Israel can say, glory to God. So right off the bat, as we look at this, there's a lot of bad things happening. I just imagine if a besieging took place in our town, 
The very last thing that we would think is good things are going to come from this. That's the last thing that we would think. We would think this is horrible. And I'm sure in that very moment, Daniel and his friends were not thinking, this is great. God's in charge. They knew God was in charge. And we're going to see that that the resolve is absolutely incredible. How they showed their faithfulness to God in the midst of these things. But God is the one that was allowing this. Nebuchadnezzar takes some of the temple vessels intended for the worship of the true God, brought them into the temple of a false God to be used for blasphemous worship. That's, that's the scene. And like I said, that's, that's bad enough that he would take these, te- these temple vessels, but then we see what's next. We see in the text that he orders Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring certain of the captives of Judah into a special group. He says, also, I want you to get people. Now, this is territory that should cause aching in our hearts. Because this is not the only time this has ever happened in history. When an innocent people, not only that, but God's people, and not only that, but young people, are taken advantage of and brought into a system and a thinking that is totally unlike God and does not please him. And it is totally like Satan to go after the youth. First, it is totally like the enemy of our God to go after those who are young and most vulnerable. But again, like I said, God is ultimately working here. He says to bring certain of the captives of Judah into this special group so that after an allotted time they will become useful to the cause of the king. Let me read it for you from the text itself. Verse 3, Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the, of the royal family, of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's place and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldees. Now, we will ultimately get into that portion next week with the resolve of Daniel and what, what, begins to take, what begins to take place there. But we need to sort of fill in the blanks here because this is easy to run past these verses and forget the gravity of what just took place. Youths were just taken from their homes and their houses in Jerusalem. Potentially, this is speculation, but under the cover of night, middle of the day, I don't know, into their homes by the order of Nebuchadnezzar to rip them out of their homes and bring them back to a foreign land in Babylon. That's what just happened. So I want you to imagine parents and kids. Imagine, middle of the night, with nothing that you can do physically, they storm your houses, they come in, the kids are taken and brought back to a foreign land so that they might be indoctrinated in the ways of that pagan system. That's what just happened. And Daniel is one of those youths. The abduction of these youths, the best and the brightest of them, ultimately is what he's saying. Go and get the best of them. Young men and women taken from their homes and families by the king, brought back into this foreign and unfamiliar land. And that in and of itself it would be devast- is absolutely devastating. It's sickening to think about that. So, at the very beginning of Daniel, we understand that the context is exile. That's the context. 
Daniel is a unique book in that it was written not in Israel or from Jerusalem, but written in exile while Israel is under captivity. Similar to Ezekiel. There's a parallel that we need to see here right away. One is that exile is a consequence of sin. Being exiled is a consequence of sin. Adam and Eve were banished from the garden because of sin. It's always been that way. God set it up that way that if there's, when there's sin and rebellion, again, like I said in the beginning, it banishes us, it separates us from the good things that God has. And Adam and Eve had a perfect place. They were there in God's paradise. And having rebelled against God, they are then kicked out of that paradise and separated from the good things that God had given them. They were ultimately exiled. Outside of a relationship with Christ, people are also separated and banished from God. And that's the fall of the world. That's the sin in our world that caused the fall of humanity in every human heart. That we cannot be with God outside of a relationship with Jesus Christ because we still exist in that banishment and exile. For us today as Christians, Christians live in this temporary state. The Bible says that we are called aliens and exiles. That's who you and I are right now as professing followers of Jesus. If you're a Christian right now in this room, you're in exile. You are different. You're in a foreign land, and you've got decisions to make, like Daniel, like these guys. We have a home that is not of this world. This is not our home. Does that make sense? This is not our home. The way we speak about our walk with God and our love for God and our destiny in heaven and where we're going, we, we speak that from a place of exile. The king that rules the universe is our king. Yet he has allowed us to live in a foreign land. And there's darkness all around us. And there's a multitude of trials. Guys, there's not a whole lot different from the perspective that Daniel's writing from as a child of God following him with evil king and pagan lands and darkness all around him writing from a place of exile. That's you and me. I'm not trying to say we have it as bad as Daniel. I understand. I have not been ripped out of my home ever like Daniel has. And most of you have not. But there is a parallel here. Remember, Scripture speaks of Christ. The purpose of all of Scripture is to proclaim to us the gospel and an eternal kingdom. And this should help us to begin to see how does this Bible, this book, this even particular book of prophecy, how does it apply to us? Well, it is because we are in exile. While we're here, we have decisions to make whether we worship the God of this age, who is Satan, or the God of heaven and earth, who is Jesus Christ. We have that decision to make here, in exile, surrounded by a multitude of evil and pagan kings who do not have your best interest in mind and do want every opportunity to point you away from your God, Jesus Christ. And they will continue in this vein of thinking because it has been the system since the beginning. For Satan to steer you away from what is true and what is good. 
that God gives. First Peter chapter 1 opens this way. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He was speaking to elect believers who had been exiled. There was another exile there in that time. But look at 1 Peter 2.11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Peter used the same language to get us to understand who we are and where we belong. You are sojourners and exiles, and the, the things around you are of the world. Abstain from those things. And what we will see Daniel do is that very thing. He will abstain from the world. He will live without compromise. He will keep his eyes set like flint on God. And he will make decisions based on that. So ultimately, this will be a trying time for Judah. But God allows us to see the lives of these four men that we were already introduced to. But young men, the the general consensus is that they were anywhere from as young as 13 years old to maybe 20 years old. Why? That's the age group that you indoctrinate. That's the age group that you grab a hold of if you want to teach them languages, if you want to teach them your ways, if you want to give them your food and your delicacies to conform them into your image. That's what you do. You take the young. God allows us to see the lives of these four young men in the midst of opposition so that we might see their resolve and their determination to not bow Look with me at this next section, and we'll just read a little bit further down. Look at verse 4. Youths without blemish, of good appearance, skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, and learning, competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldees. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. These four individuals, absolutely incredible what we're going to see. We're going to see very early on that God is indeed with Daniel. The tendency is to, when we're introduced to a situation in a book like this, to think how in the world could God be in the midst of such a bad situation? How could God be doing this and allowing this and how could anything good? But if we know the story of the Bible... We know that there are many, many occasions, but the very first one, the one at the top of the list, is the fact that God allowed his son to be exiled. That God allowed his son to be even crucified and taken advantage of and murdered at the hands of evil rulers for the salvation of our souls. That we might be saved and brought into eternal life with God. Being in exile among strangers does not mean that God has left you. 
maybe that's the one thing that you need to hear. Being in exile among strangers in the world is looking stranger and stranger to the Christian principles that we hold to, isn't it? Being in exile among strangers does not mean that God isn't with you. But God has you in this moment, has you here, has you in the midst of a dark world right now to represent his name, to preach his gospel, to spread his kingdom that this book is ultimately about. Daniel is going to tell us about a king and a kingdom that will come that rules and wipes out every other kingdom in this world and every ruler is subject to him. Every single one in Christ reigns supreme If you don't know that king, if you don't have that Christ in your life, then you follow after a ruler and a king that is of this world. And Scripture is very clear that to die in that place and in that situation and under that rule is to be banished and separated for eternity from God. Daniel will be tried but he will remain faithful to God under the pressure of world powers. There's a lot of parallels, isn't there? We're thinking all about world powers today. Maybe you're not. I don't know. But it's, it's out there. The world powers are doing something. And there's always, always a pull or a push or a, an agenda to get you to not think according to the will and the law of God, but to get you to just be like the world. And if I could say something to those who are younger and more influenced, that you would take heed to the Word of God. And that it's not impossible. It's not impossible. Hard, yes, not impossible to maintain a walk with God in the midst of this world. It's not impossible. And it is absolutely necessary And we have the case of Daniel and these other men and God using them in the midst of a far worse situation than what we have right here. Far, far worse. In fact, because of Daniel's humility, God is going to use him to influence those rulers. And that's another aspect that we cannot forget. We are not called to hit the mountains and run. We're not a lot, we're not called to be hermits and as things get worse, just hide out as little Christians. We're not called to do that. There may come a time where there's more of an underground presence of the church. I, I don't know what's going to happen. That's certainly something that's happened before in, pa- in the past. And there are underground churches now because of persecution and hostility. But I know that we are called to influence. And if the kingdom is God's kingdom, and if he is ruler, and he is supreme and sovereign, then why are his people afraid to be an influence in places of darkness where there are rulers that are pushing against the will of God. I don't care if you go into a school. You'll see it in a school. You'll see it in government. You'll see it in your workplace. Open your eyes, and you'll begin to notice it. There is an agenda, and there is darkness, and there is a king behind that, and he is is a false god, but the God of heaven and earth is our God. There's an incredible thing that you must see in this introduction to Daniel. This, this book was written by Daniel to be a comfort to Israel in the years of their exile. I already mentioned that briefly. And to the people of God who would live through the horrors of the intertestamental period. You guys know what that is. That's those 400 years after the last prophecy of Malachi till the day that Jesus was born. 400 years of what seemed to be silence. Well, who lived during that time? Well, that 
ruler that I mentioned, Antiochus Epiphanes and many others, and the Caesars would begin to come on the scene. And just reading the Gospels, we know what the Caesars were like. Let's kill all that are two years old and under so we might get rid of this Messiah. That's the way of the world, to kill life, to take away the good that God does and to diminish it and to shroud it. This book was a light during that period, I'm sure. I couldn't imagine what it'd be like to read this with the prophecies of the king is coming. <laughs> Kingdoms from that time would rise and fall, but there would come a kingdom and a king 600 years later. He's called in this book, and we'll get there, the mountain cut without hands that would destroy the kingdoms of man and usher in the new covenant. And that kingdom will permeate the whole world and will never end. He is that mountain hewn without hands. Why? Because he is God. He's the only thing that was not made. God himself. And Jesus is that stone. And that image that we'll get to is that incredible, iconic image with the gold and the bronze and the stone feet, the iron mixed with clay, with the kingdoms that would exist. And where does that stone hit? It hits the very feet and the entire thing comes to an end. And that is Jesus Christ. That is the king who has no end to his dominion and rule. And that's what we cling to, church. Those are the things that we think about when we're in the midst of our exile. However, that looks in your life. The, uh, again, the greatest exile, though, was Jesus. I want to end on that note. The greatest exile was Jesus. Scripture says, Who for the joy set before him left the glory of heaven to take on our human condition to endure the cross that sinners deserved to endure under the hand of evil rulers. Yet he was an instrument of redemption in the sovereign hands of God. He was the ultimate exile, choosing to leave that place for us, to, be, to leave his home in heaven, and for a while come here so that we might have a faithful, perfect high priest who intercedes for us now. He is king, church. He is king of kings and lord of lords. And we have absolutely nothing to fear. As we journey through Daniel, it will look a little bit different than chapter 1. And again, next week we'll come back and we'll look at these actual resolves. There are dreams. There are visions. There are interpretations of these dreams. God does incredible things in this book through Daniel. There are stories that show us the resolve of Daniel and what it is to live in a world that opposes God. There's stories that are going to talk to us about places of impasse. Where, where are we going to place our allegiance? Are we going to bow to the pressures of the world and worship the false gods of this age because it's easier? Or will we do what is right? Or will we do what is true and worship the God of heaven and earth? These are the things that we're going to face. It will be challenging at times. Pray for the elders. I won't be the only one teaching through this series. I'll teach through the majority of it, but you'll see other guys up here teaching. Pray for us as we study this book, as we digest it and, and prayerfully come to feed uh, you guys on the Word of God. So this hopefully sets the stage for what we're going to be getting into. You guys ready for it? 
That was only that was my third introduction. All right, let's start. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> All right, let's pray, church. Father, we are so grateful that you have given us a kingdom to be a part of. And we are, we are, we are in need. We are in need of your grace. We're in need of your instruction. We need your hand in our lives, Lord. We will fail apart from your power and your Holy Spirit. We believe that Daniel's success and the success of these men are only because of your grace. We believe what they said, that even if you do not rescue us, we will worship you anyway. Because we know that there is an ultimate rescue, that our bodies could be burned in fire, Lord. We could be brought to our very end, persecuted. But we are eternal creatures. Help us, God, to look to the things that are heavenly, not things of this earth, where moth and rust corrode. Help us to look to that kingdom. You, you say, Jesus, seek me first. Seek my kingdom and my righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. I pray that we, the way we see the kingdom would be a lot different, Lord, as, as we go through this book together. That we would not walk through this world with fear and timidity, for you have not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and a sound mind. God, those that are thinking about the current world events and, and wrestling and struggling, trying to figure out where do we fit into this picture of the end times, God, well, I pray that we would stop thinking that way. I pray that we would just look at Scripture and not try to read the newspapers to figure out when the world is going to end. God, we trust what has been said. We trust that your kingdom is here. You came on this earth and you said the kingdom of God is is here. And you are spreading your kingdom through the preaching and the witness of the church as we preach the gospel, as we draw people into the kingdom through the love of Christ and the call to repentance. So what people are doing is they are bending the knee to the true king. God, so help us, God. Give us the resolve that we need. I pray that we would find even warning to what we've heard today in the scriptures that what sin does is it divides Sin causes banishment. It ruins relationships. It causes there to be exile. And Lord, as we live in this sinful world, in a type of exile, with our kingdom of being ultimately of another world, help us to keep our eyes on Christ. God, fill us with, fill us with your spirit. Strengthen those that are weak right now, God. Bring answers to those that are confused. Lord, those that are walking into hard, hard territory territory with the gospel. God, give them a resilience. God, let this church be a light, a light of that kingdom, a light for Christ in the midst of this darkness, God. And we are grateful to be called for such a time as this. We're so grateful. God, lead us through this book. Lord, let it be a blessed season as we journey together through it. Strengthen your church, God, for the sake of the kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, church. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. For more messages from New City Church or to find our gathering times and location, check out our website at bathnewcity.church. We hope to have you join us next week.